Roy, how long have you been uh, floating this river for? You know, I was fortunate that my uh, big sister, Shelly, who's 10 years my senior, married an outfitter, owned a business, Idaho Guide Service, and uh, so I grew up working with her and their family. Oh, cool. So I got exposed to rivers at an early age, and you know, growing up in Idaho, if you don't take advantage of these wild rivers and these mountain places to float right. and fish, right. you know, you're missing out. It'd be like growing up in, on the coast and never Going learning surf. to surf yeah. or play in the, in the waves. Yeah. So I've always thought this is the normal way to spend the summer, but I've been on the middle fork here now for, uh, this is my 10th year with Jeff over here. Cool. I helped those guys out of uh, Pickle on the Lower Salmon. They had a guide who got injured from Oregon. I live in Riggins, not far from where they were launching. They were doing back-to-back -back trips. And so as they came off the trip with the injured guide, they didn't have time to get somebody from Oregon over here to take his place for the next trip. And so they got my name through the grapevine as a drift boat guide and a fisherman who could do what they needed to do down there on the lower salmon on a fall cast and blast, fishing for steelhead, fall chinook, oh, cool. bass. We hunt upland game bird, chucker, quail, and partridge. And a, that that sounds they're, like a cool they're trip. They're a large time, yep. You get everybody out. It's fall weather, so you know you have a big fire at night. We do a cast and blast back home with dove and dove and salmon. Right. right around September 1st, the dove opener come, comes and peace, love, fish. Yep. That's cool. So I helped those boys out. I got a, about a nine-hour notice to be down there at the put-in the next day for a five-day trip. Wow. So I ran around, threw all my gear together because yeah. it was kind of a surprise. Yeah. And uh, instantly realized I was in great company, had a wonderful time. Right. Plus, it's my backyard, so I kicked their ass catching steelhead. <laughs> and uh, ever since then, they invited me back on those fall casting, cast and blast trips. So I did that for about three years with them. And then they had a gentleman named Don Wouda, legend of the Middle Fork, after... I think nearly 30 years working with the Helfrich family. He was retiring at 68, 69 years old. And, and he uh, did his last trip, was my first trip. And so he taught me how to fry the chicken. And that's what you do with the bacon, Roy. And so I, I learned most of his duties, and it was a real honor. They called him Coach, a great guy. and uh, That's cool. A legend on the river, like I said. So it was an honor to be asked to take his place and invited over here to fill those big shoes. And, now it's been 10 years and I'm no longer the greenhorn. Now I'm one of the veterans, so. Well, you guys do a good and pretty awesome job. It's, it's, it's neat just watching Great you guys. Yeah, yeah, it's neat watching you guys work well, the, the The greatest campground. thing is no one's ever told me what to do. You just, everybody does more in their share and it's, yeah. it all works out. Yeah. And you just kind of fall into little niche jobs that was it suit your skill set. Was it always called tight lines by Jeff's dad? Uh, you know, uh, you know, I can't tell you exactly what Jeff's dad called the company, yeah. uh, but then when Jeff's dad sold, he sold to Steve Schaefer's. Um, who's what, was married Jeff's, to, what was Jeff's name? Jeff's dad's name? Jeff's dad was Dick Helfrich. So okay. as, as the uh, Helfrich history goes, you had Prince Helfrich, who's the first chapter in every history book on all the rivers of the Northwest. As a fisherman and a boatman, you know, he was a pretty amazing guy and really courageous to be out running a lot of these rivers from British Columbia, wow. Oregon, Washington, and Idaho before anybody else even had tried it or knew where some of these rivers went. And so, uh, you know, they had a good thing going with the Rogue River and the McKenzie Valley there. They brought a lot of clientele out of the Bay Area, California yeah. in the 1920s and 30s. 
And rather than risking your life and uh, working really hard as in the timber industry, you know, these guys realize, hey, there's a, there's a need and a niche for this guiding. And we know the rivers, we got the boats, and we can put people on the trout. Yeah. So they started these, you know, this outfitting career. But in Oregon there, the uh, McKenzie and those rivers, you know, they tend to get warm and low in July and August and don't trout fish all that well. So they were often having to find other things to do to keep themselves busy that time of year. So they were always, I think, this is my own perspective of it, but I always think they were probably on the search for something that could keep them busy in July and August, a place yeah. where they could keep fishing and rowing and have the water and, yeah, the, yeah. and the dry fly bite to work with. And so in 1939, Woody Heineman, the guy given credit for designing these wood boats were rowing, uh, Jeff's granddad's best friend, Prince, and they, uh, Woody and his wife Ruthie came with a small group of people and they floated from Salmon, Idaho in 1939 all the way to Riggins, Idaho, where I live. Wow. And they made this 140-mile trip over, I'm sure, a week or 10 days. And they didn't catch a lot of fish off the main river. You know, they enjoyed it. Beautiful country, wild place, characters living along the river edge. Oh, I'm sure. But when they floated by the mouth of the Middle Fork, old Woody looked upstream and went, holy cow, now that looks like a trout stream. So he parked his boat, and they say he hiked up the river a ways. We don't know how far. But he caught trout after trout after trout, seeing 50-pound Chinook turning the corner, headed up the Middle Fork, and Whoa. said, we got to find out what this stream is. Asked the rest of the people on the group, and, you know, well, I think that, you know, they call that the Middle Fork of the Salmon, but I really don't know where it starts. or Nobody knew anything about it. So he got home, did a little bit of map research. There wasn't any real great detailed maps of the region because it's the, at the time known as the Idaho Primitive Area. So he uh, said in his journal, which we were lucky enough to have Woody Heinemann's great nephew on a trip about five or six years ago. Oh, wow. He brought Woody and Ruthie's original journals from those trips and Whoa. every night would read out of them as we went down the river. Oh, so, that's cool. So about three, a couple weeks after they were home from their uh, main salmon expedition, the uh, Saying was great because it kind of, you know, I'm sure suit the times. You don't hear people talk like that now. But Woody looks at Ruthie and says, Ruthie, what do you think about headed back to the state of Idaho and we'll try and run that Middle Fork salmon? And she said, oh, Woody, of all the stupid ideas, had a damn good time. Let's do it. <laughs> and so this would have been late July after they had run the main salmon a little earlier in the year. And they loaded up a 14-foot McKenzie on top of their truck upside down and set out for Idaho, about a three-day drive from the Eugene area to get up into the mountains in Bear Valley. Wow. Supposedly they stopped by a place called the Bear Valley Dude Ranch, it said in the journal, and they talked to the head wrangler there and got a little information, and his advice to them was, make it as far as you can so I can charge you more when I bring my pack team to get you out. <laughs> so they launched their little boat at a place called Fur Creek on his advice and made it down to Dagger Falls, which is a huge falls on the upper middle fork that's above we where we, in, put, we uh, put in just a half mile below it yeah got to the falls and it said that they uh landed on the island and why woody roped the boat over the falls ruthie used a long piece of lodge pole to keep the bow off the rocks and they together the two of them got the boat through there wow made their way down the river started catching fish after fish taking turns rowing and fishing and uh, made friends with the Hood family, which we floated by their deserted property yesterday, which was a hayfield on the left just after we left camp. 
but the Hoods were living there and running a small cattle operation, and so they made friends with them, and it said they stayed several days with them, marveling at the fact that the Hoods' 16-year-old daughter was just returning from a long pack trip by herself to the town of Yellow Pine to pick up provisions and supplies and had a whole pack team and the family dogs with her, and they just were like, oh my gosh, you're... 16-year-old daughter rode the horse and took all those pack animals to town by herself. And they said, yeah, somebody had to go to town. Wow. <laughs> and I'm sure she was happy to do it. Wow. <laughs> so they had these great adventures. And so in 1940, Prince put together a few clients and him and Woody returned to the Middle Fork and they uh, ran a small group of guys down the river and did the first outfitted trip in 1940 on this river. So they have the oldest history of running these Idaho rivers as a commercial outfitter and probably the longest continuous run as, of outfitting. They would have been back I'm sure in 41, 42 but because of the political climate and the start of World War sure. II everybody was drawn in different directions sure. and it wasn't until the early 1950s that they were back and started a full-time and then since then permanent history on the river outfitting in the summers here. The uh, prince eventually retired and turned it over to his three sons, which were Dick, Dean, and Dave. All of them ended up acquiring their own permits in various ways. Because while Prince was here, there was not a permit system ask in that. place. I was going to ask that. And yeah. so the way I understand it, it sounded like the two older boys, not Jeff's dad, but the Dean and Dave, were both issued permits from the Forest Service when they started the original permit process. So. The families were given two permits. Uh, Dick was young enough that he just worked for his brothers for a while. And then an elderly uh, outfitter from the Lower Salmon uh, that had this permit ended up selling it to Dick for $1, I was told. <laughs> and so Dick acquired his permit and the three Helferches all ran their own individual businesses from that time on. Then eventually traded it on to all of their children. And now we're just hoping that fourth generation steps up and keeps it going. When Is Jeff West retires at 65 in about seven years, It'll be a hundred years of uh, Helfrich outfitting. That's incredible. Is Weston wanting to do that? You know, uh, I hope so. Yeah. Uh, he's got a lot of ideas right now. My guess is, is uh, if I had to be an oracle and guess the future, is I could see Weston easily running the day fishing in uh, McKenzie area, the Rogue River stuff in the fall. Whether or not he'll continue the uh, tradition of coming to Idaho for the summers, I don't know. I'd be, be a little bit surprised if he did. Is that his only son? Yep. Even though he'd be great at it, and the kid's got all the skills. Yeah. Great boatman, great fisherman. Yeah. Funny guy, understands the logistics, understands the, sure. the whole process. That's so pretty I hope neat. He does. If he does, I'll stick around and help him for a while. Yeah. Where do you like to fish for steelhead on, on the salmon drainage? Uh, you know, we're, uh, my business is based out of the lower salmon. So it's the, uh, we have a permits to fish the lower 120 miles of river from Vinegar Creek all the way to where it joins the snake. So we're fortunate in Idaho, you know, I can't wait to get home this time of year because the bulk of our Idaho steelhead are moving through Bonneville Dam right now. Over uh -huh. the next three weeks, we'll get a feel for how many fish we have returning. Right, right. So uh, water temps are critical and unfortunately it's uh, the systems manipulated downstream of us to alter the natural temperatures of the water. So you have Dwarshack, a big dam and reservoir up the clear water. Yep. And it will uh, release water from the bottom of the dam at a, probably an average of seven to eight degrees cooler than what would be historically normal. Sure. 
the Hell's Canyon complex, everything spills nice. off the top. Good fish. Ooh. Everything spills off the top, so it comes out of those reservoirs superheated, seven to 10 degrees warmer than what's normal. So as our steelhead return upstream, they hit the clear water first with this shot of ice cold water. Yeah, that's a beautiful river. Tends to be like a shade tree on a hot sunny day. Our fish like to shade up in there. The Snake River's belching really warm water. They shy away from it. So every year we're very hopeful that September cools. The sooner we can get some freezing nights and sure. lower water temperatures, the better our fish will return uh, early. What are those numbers? So, 50,000, 100,000? Uh, uh, our best years, we've had nearly 600,000 steelhead right. come up the system. I've, I've heard that. I've heard them and, stack up in Columbia. And, and so uh, this year we're going to see one of our poorest returns because of 2015 was a killer year. It was the perfect storm in essence for uh, destroying downriver smolt, steelhead, salmon, both. Yeah. Even killed some adult fish. They had full-size sturgeon float up dead because the Columbia was running from record low snowpacks at the lowest people had seen in years. People were partying on beaches outside of Portland they hadn't seen in their lifetime. Wow. The month of June brought a heat wave that had temperatures where I live in Riggins up to 113 in June, wow. which low water, Right. Extreme heat, nighttime lows were setting records for staying as hot as it ever had in June. The river warmed uh, in our area 76, 77 degrees. Ouch. In places in the Columbia, it was well over 80. Not to mention that it was terrible conditions for our fish in the river. When they did hit the ocean, there was this phenomenon they referred to as the blob. It was a massive cell of hot, stagnant water. There was a variety of uh, blooms along the coastline of algae there was a, just a, a death trap waiting for the fish even once they made it out of the horrible river system so so this year after two years since then we're going to see a real reduction of our fish that stay two years in the salt which is our bigger typically referred to as b run steelhead yeah yeah, yeah. our a run those fish that stay one year in the salt we'll probably see them back in decent numbers because last year was good conditions for out migration so uh my guess is on the salmon river you know if we can get to Somewhere between sixty and a hundred thousand fish will nice. That's we'll a good be one. all right. Nice big fish. Good fish, Dave. Good hooks. Nice. <laughs> he worked for it. Just ripping cut. Staying patient. Middle fork salmon. Yeah. So we fished that lower river. We got a lot of big gravel bars. Great swinging conditions for uh, swinging flies in the fall when the water's warm and they're holding in that shallow riffle. These fish come back brilliant and bright. Enter our river, usually by the first week of October, we got plenty of fish around. We'll fish hard all the way through early December. Usually the river will ice over and give us about a three week break around Christmas. And then we start fishing early, mid January. And we'll chase those fish right into the middle of March. You get pretty deep? Yeah, I was looking for your forceps. Here comes my uh, extraction forceps. Yeah, yeah. It's a handful. Oh, it was bleeding a little. He, yeah, he took a deep. Want to eat that juicy bug? Am I up yet, or what? You gonna keep? You gonna keep ripping? I was letting you get it in there, so you could rip one of those fatties. So we're blessed with about a five-month steelhead season there. And it, so when is it open to fish? Uh, to be honest, August 1st is legal catch and release fishing. Yeah. 
<coughs> September 1st is the first day of harvest. Do you, do, do you skate dry flies for them? Uh, you can, yep. I've had them come up and eat dry flies. Traditional swinging has been the norm, but more guys are figuring out that they'll eat dries all the time, so. Yeah. A kind of a khaki brown, Chernobyl Ann is the bug I have my best luck bringing them to the surface on. Kind of an off-colored tan. That fish was right by that big rock submerged. You see that? And it just came right up. And came out of the shadow. So you spend those months, August, September, October, guiding steelhead? Nope. I start first, of, first week of October, and then I'll finish the last day of March. Wow. We have a good time. We fish gear through the cold months. We got a lot of guys out swinging yeah. in the spring and also in the fall. When the water temps are up a little bit, we have our best success. And that's a growing industry. There's more and more people all the time wanting to either learn to spay cast or put in the time. And, yeah. And we can get them, you know, basically the one thing we offer them, though, is we can get them to breaks that you can't get to from the road. That's, oh, that that's what we can do for you. And then it's up to you to, ooh, that's a nice fish. Size of these trout are getting bigger. We're in a batch of them. I get the feeling you go through waves of fish, you know, yeah. and you're getting these fish moving up the river. You know, historically, I think when we had bazillion salmon in here, they would migrate up river and get themselves in position to feed underneath those areas where there's a lot of spawning. Sure. Now we don't have the salmon, so these fish are relying on bugs, so they're putting themselves in locations to capitalize on the, the hatching insects more so than the, than the salmon. So this river's gone through a real transformation over the last hundred years. Wow. Being a prolific salmonoid stream with incredible numbers of summer run salmon. And they say right now, you know, this middle fork is a sanctuary for salmon and steelhead. We were talking about the run up Loon Creek of steelhead. So you got yeah. every one of these streams out here has interesting variety of steelhead in multiple years returning. So you got two and three uh, year returning fish. They say there's some super fish of Idaho that even make the outward journey and will return as uh, 30-pound fish. Wow. Doesn't happen very often now yeah. that the system's been dammed in eight places. But yeah. they say there's still a very, very small percent of these steelhead that have the ability to achieve their spawning destination. And then the higher and stronger that the spring runoff is, and the earlier it comes, will increase the success of those fish out migrating and having a chance to come back as a super fish of Idaho. Well, I think that... I'd love uh, to think of that concept. Uh, uh, yeah, I hope we're on a... Did you see that? Yeah. yeah, natural rise right there. And my new gig is this year, I'm drinking all the spring water I can because they tell you when you're a kid, you are what you eat, but I'm starting to think really it should be you are what, what you, you drink. What you drink, yeah. And by the end of the summer, I want to try and be 90% Salmon River. <laughs> that spring water is good. Oh shit! Get so all good. you can. That's one of the greatest things about this place is how much clean, healthy water just bubbles out of the ground through these mountains. Ooh, denied. So that's my goal: ninety percent middle fork water by the time I leave here. Ten percent beer and whiskey. <laughs> and I hear a lot of river guides say, oh man, I don't ever feel better than anywhere in the world than when I'm out on the river, you know, and I'm starting to think, you know, a big part of that is probably because you don't drink anything but river water. Yeah, I'd like to come back here and do some steelhead fishing on the, up in Idaho. I've, we fish our coastal streams a lot in California and Oregon. Love it. But, um, 
Yeah, just heard a lot about these A and B strain of steelhead. Yep. Big boys. Yeah. They're some beautiful, and they're warrior fish. You know, they make this epic journey. Sure. They don't break down because they don't, that doesn't happen until they're ready to spawn. So they swim here and they're bright silver. So they, they live here all winter, they're bright like silver, they and then fight in the just, spring. Just as well as uh, you the... know, oh, I would say so. You know, I mean, they're well exercised fish. Yeah. They, but you know, if anything, it strengthens them on the way yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. And they're pretty damn determined, so they they scrap. I've never caught anything real close to the coast, so it's hard to say what the comparison. The difference would be, is, but, yeah. And we're fishing them out of big volume river, so there's a lot of current on them too. I mean, you're fishing out of. Eight, ten thousand CFS a lot of the time. That's and cold fishing though, huh? You're fishing in fifteen degree yeah, weather and ah, uh, you know, there's that you get every aspect. Ooh, right out of the middle of the river there. Nice fish came up. So you get, you know, October, which is t shirt weather and Yeah, yeah. Skating beautiful. You stand and, in the river all day, yeah. you sit in the drift boat all day in your shorts and yeah. Most days in October I in my flip flops and shorts by the end of the day. And then you have November, which will start bringing some foul weather. My December and January fishing, you bet I've had a foot and a half of snowfall in the boat while I'm out there. And I've had days where, you know, obviously if it gets too cold, the river's going to freeze. But yeah. a lot of days I've been below zero or below 32 all day while I'm in the boat. Roy, if somebody, nice. if somebody wanted to get a hold of you to go on a guided trip or fish with you, how would they, how would they um, find I'll you? I'll make sure everybody has one of my cards when we leave at the last day. What's a good, is there a number or a website that you, uh, that you have? Or? Rapid River Outfitters has a website and... Uh, Your name's on there? In the my case, name's yeah. on there. Yeah. You can reach us at 1208-628-3862. But we have a Facebook page at Rapid River Outfitters that we do up to date. Okay, cool. Uh, postings of the fish we're catching, the oh, river cool. conditions, everything that's happening. Perfect. I get a lot of followers that you know, you got to be careful. You want to tell people how great it is, right, but, but you don't want to. Exactly. But you don't want to tell everybody yep. how great it is. So, yep. so there's definitely a balancing act and For a sure. tightrope we walk there. For sure. But at the same time, you want to share that information you, and make sure people know when it's time to be there. You know, and that's the thing. If you educate them properly and make them respect the, the area and the fishery, you know, right in front of that rock. And that's the key. And then, you know, in the Riggins area where we're located is, you know, it's a big part of the, uh, the, the allure and the attraction for me is that we have a lot of river miles. We're not close to a major metropolis area. I heard it had fallen on the floor up there. Um, we're not close to a major metropolis area. We have rivers on either side of us that fish well on the cooler. There's one. Oh, that there it goes. And so we don't get overrun with people. And even in the busiest times of our season, I can go out on a day in my drift boat and know that I'm going to be able to fish 20 holes and not have another boat in them. So a lot of space, a lot of elbow room. You know, obviously every place gets discovered sooner or later, but so, so far, drift down so far in the 20 years I've been there, we got so many miles open river, sure. it's almost ridiculous. So you, you drift down, find a, one of your favorite gravel bars and get out and swing it? Yep. Nice. Yep, we're bouncing. Usually, you know, if we could, if things are happening and you're making a go of a spot, we can, we can spend a lot of time in one break. But most days, generally speaking, I'll, uh, I'll have guys wading into three to five spots. Yeah. Sometimes it's nice just to keep people moving and 
See new water. Do shad make it up the... But with the fish moving up the river, nope. Never uh, seen a shad ever make it into Idaho or into the snake even. Huh. So that's all in the lower Columbia. Columbia, yeah. They still get, you know, two million plus fish in some of their runs of shad, but yeah. they just don't come up the the Columbia very far. Do you go out there in the Columbia and sturgeon fish? You know, ever, uh, we got that? great sturgeon fishery in our river there, so uh, don't have to do it. And the uh, sturgeon in the Salmon River, which can go 11 plus feet. Yeah. Uh, don't get angled for a lot. The Hell's Canyon is the big hotbed area, so jet boat charters on the Hell's Canyon or the float groups coming downstream will fish sturgeon on a regular basis. There's a lot of them in there, but the fish are educated. They get caught a lot. The Salmon River, most people don't even realize it's a uh, sturgeon fishery, and so it gets very little pressure. The fish we're catching out of there are wild creatures. They don't get messed right. with very often. Right. So. So that's a thrill, and uh, in the springtime we offer a six-day campout sturgeon fishing trip. We try to launch it uh, last week of March, first week of April. It's a real kicked-back, fun campout because you have two hours, usually a set line fishing, while you're having lunch somewhere along the day. But most of the fishing is done from our campsites where you're set lining, and you can leave the rods out till two, three in the morning if you want to. And, it's a real kickback trip with a lot of time to sit back and enjoy the scenery, have a drink, and wait for a rod to twitch, and then you can have three hours of fish battle. Wow. And sometimes we've cut them off in the middle of the night because everybody's just tired and ready to go to bed. <laughs> Those sturgeon are amazing, amazing creatures, how prehistoric they are, and when you oh, see yeah. them roll, they come out like, they look like a telephone pole coming out yep. of the water and massive, crashing down. Massive creatures, and the fact that they can live, you know, upwards of 200 years. That's incredible. You know, there's fish that are just dying right now that potentially could have been alive when Lewis and Clark came out That's with incredible. The Idaho sturgeon, they don't have a harvest on them because they're trapped from their native spawning habitat, which would have been mostly in the lower Columbia. So we're not getting a great return. The fish are starting to adapt and to recover and find new ways to to effectively spawn in the environment they're in. But these yeah. fish, you know, migrated up and down the Columbia system, mostly to situate themselves throughout the time of the year to acquire the most amount of food possible. So in the spring, you would have had them searching for mussels, freshwater mussels up and down the river corridor. They'd drop into the big pools for the recovery of the dead salmon as they started to die and decay from after the spring spawn and the summer spawn, so you had the system where these fish were on the move, traveling great distances. It's to, amazing that they're in the Delta in California, and then they go all the way up the ocean and right into yep. the Columbia. It's, yeah, they don't, they don't call them anadromous, but they do have the ability to make that adjustment, that amazing that, metamorphosis into that, a saltwater that, breathing fish, and make these long pilgrimages to other yeah. rivers and know where they're going, know where they're looking for. All white sturgeon, right? There's no green they sturgeon? They are not in the Columbia, nope, all white sturgeon. Yeah. We have a big, uh, there's a big pool right in Chico that is one of the main, uh, big run salmon, sturgeon, a lot of fish hang out there and it's one of the main green sturgeon spawning yep. habitats. And they're, so they're, they're interesting creatures. I'm fascinated with those green sturgeon, partly because we don't have them around here. They closed the river down from a bridge, 162. Oh, uh, they're so rare and so unique yeah. and that's one of the last strongholds I'm sure yeah. in the world for them. Yeah, the record white sturgeon out of the Columbia, though, 21 feet and nearly 1,900 pounds. Jeez. Absolutely Can you awesome. Imagine a sturgeon, a big and as a so jet many, boat like that. So many great legends of 
giant sturgeon and the old timers hooking them and getting tangled and being pulled underwater or mule teams that they were using to drag, to drag the big ones out. out getting backed into the water and oh narrowly gosh. being cut free at the last moment before the sturgeon drug them under. Great legends that have been told over the eons about these mighty fish and their, I've feats, got a, their feats of power. I've got a steelhead book back home. It shows this picture of a black and white picture of a sturgeon and it's 1600 pounds. It looks like a car sitting next to these people. Awesome. You know? Enormous. Yep, and in the old days on the Snake River, they actually had commercial fishing and these guys would float down Farewell Bend area uh, just before the Hell's Canyon and they would harpoon sturgeon out of flat bottom boats. They would tie them live to a log and then travel down the river and had meeting points where they would then meet wagons of ice, harvest the sturgeon and load them up and send them to the nearest towns wow. in these wagons. And they actually had a wow. almost a whaling type fishery for them where they would float down the river, catch them in the shallows and harpoon them, bang. Which must have been a pretty thrilling occupation. Oh, for sure. Do you, uh, have you caught any uh, lampreys in here and you know, eat, eaten uh, them or tried to eat them? No, uh, there's not enough. You know, in the big picture, you know, at one time, probably 100,000 plus lamprey would return to Idaho. In this day and age, we're seeing numbers most years that the last dam that we can count fish as they come up the Columbia, anadromous fish that yeah. are mig migrating to Idaho, uh, is at Lower Granite. Uh -huh. So at Lower Granite, they give the counts, and the most I think I've ever seen is about 1,200, 1,500 lampreys make it back to Idaho and in the years I've been keeping track and watching, so not a lot of them. So those are the ones they Even count, though I though. have swam in the river and seen what were <clears throat> most likely lamprey because they were small, translucent-looking eels oh, yeah, that yeah. must have uh, Babies or naturally something. spawned in the river, little babies. Yeah. I know the Native Americans in California like to... They, they, when they're spawning in the spring, they'll come in and use big hooks and just rake the gravel bar for them. Nice. And uh, they love eating that oh. stuff. Love it. You said the Shoshone the, uh, would eat them, You right? know, the Shoshone and the Nez Perce both uh, prize those fish highly. Such a nutritious, gotcha. oily fish. And once You're smoked on. and preserved in its own skin, had you know incredible shelf life. So Go ahead, it was keep a going. very dura very durable flesh. Plus they probably got a little tired of eating just all red meat and yeah. salmon and steelhead, and they probably enjoyed some white flaky fish on occasion as well. But they used the oil for cooking, they'd use it in their hair, probably on their skin. It was a it was a valuable commodity, those lampreys. Cub Creek, they call this. And one of these spots we're watching, it turns into a huge rapid here at high water. At low water, it's not anything. But you have this long shot of gradient. It constricts and then a bunch of boulders in your way at the bottom. Now you can see that left bank is caving in. Yeah. And there's more potential right here for an earthen dam on the river than anywhere. Wow. It'd take one little trimmer and yeah. it could plug the river here. A lot of... Uh... Earthquake activity uh, you know, in Idaho? We do, but it's all very minute, you know, yeah. registers as ones and barely a little bit over a two now and then, and it's all yeah. stems from Yellowstone, Sure. which is what we want. We want to see a lot of continuous small quakes from Yellowstone Why? so it doesn't build up pressure oh. <laughs> and give us the big shots. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're still seeing some of that seismic activity. Most of it radiates from the Yellowstone area. 
but otherwise Idaho very stable land and the fact that no major faults, not a lot of earthquakes, you don't get tornadoes or hurricanes, but wildland fire is the natural phenomenon that prevails here and keeps people humble and honest. And the cool thing out here too, you start looking around at all these plants and every one of them has its own natural ability to resist wildland fire. The wow. ponderosa trees, their bark is overlapping segments that trap air so when the bark catches fire, the air heats and pops and expels the burning embers away from the tree trunk. Wow. The mountain mahogany that we harvest for firewood, it draws all of its moisture from the underside of its needles instead of its taproot so it can grow out of solid bedrock. And growing out of solid bedrock is a great place to live when the fire comes through. <laughs> so so that's everything why out here has these neat little tricks to try and resist that's and survive why the wildland That's fire. why there's so many ponderosa pines that are half burnt. That's right. Standing. They survive. They get heated up. Unless they got a weak, weak link in their armor and that heat can get to the inside. <laughs>